stand with me in honor of God as we read his word together. Verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous and Taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying, There's another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. You may be seated. You may be encouraged through the word of the Lord this morning. Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you for your word. And as, as Jake prayed earlier, we recognize that there are, are people in our, our congregation who are hurting. We are uh, mindful of, of even those who have lost loved ones this, this past week. And we are mindful of the uh, illnesses that, that some are facing and, and some very, very grave illnesses. And so, Father, as we think about all that uh, reality of life, we recognize that our, our time is, is short, the time that you've given us. And we pray that you would give us boldness in these moments that you've provided for us. Boldness as your witnesses, boldness to proclaim the, the good news of your son, Jesus. And we pray this in his name. Amen. A couple of weekends ago, I uh, was talking with a, a man, and we were kind of just outside at, at an event chatting a little bit, and, and I had just met his son-in-law and, and this man, his, uh, the, the father-in-law, and we were, we were talking a little bit about uh, their, their family, and he said that his, his son-in-law was, was Jewish, uh, re- religious Jew, and so we were, we were talking about that, and, and he said, you know, I've talked with my son-in-law about this, the father-in-law said, I've, I've talked with my son-in-law about this, and, and he, he told me, he said, you know, you and I are exactly the same. You know, we, we believe exactly the same. Just we have on one point we're, we're different, and that's, that's when it comes to, to Jesus. And, you know, when the, the father-in-law said this, I said, okay, I, in my mind, I thought, okay, I, I need to say something. I need to, need to be a witness here. I need to be bold. And so I, I, I said, well, that, that's a pretty big difference, right? And he, as I said that, he said the exact same thing. Of course, that's a pretty big difference. And, and then, and then the, the conversation shifted really quickly, and, and he began to talk about some other things. And, and as I kind of played that conversation back in my mind, I, I realized I had really missed the opportunity, right? And, and maybe, maybe you have, have been in this, this situation as well. There's, there's that opening, and you recognize, okay, I, I'm, a witness, my, I'm a witness, my my. My job is to proclaim Jesus Christ as, as Lord, not just my job as a pastor, my job as a believer is to proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and to, and to witness 
about his power and his resurrection and, and who Jesus is. And that's, that's why I'm here on this earth. And so I have this opportunity. I need to say something. And, and I say something, but it's, it's not as bold as it needs to be. In that situation, there was so much more I could have said. I could, I could say, well, hold on. Before we go on, you know, when you say that's a pretty important difference, what, what do you mean by that? What, what does that mean to you? Why, why do you think that's important difference? Would you agree that, that Jesus just doesn't suddenly appear when it comes to the Gospel of Matthew, but that we, we encounter Jesus throughout the Old Testament as well? And that to really understand the God of the Old Testament, you need to understand who he is and his son, Jesus Christ. And would you agree that this is an important difference? I just want to see where you're coming from here. Would you agree that it's an important difference because what a person does with Jesus Christ is the most important decision they can make? And apart from placing one's trust in Jesus Christ for their eternal life, we are lost and headed for an eternity without Christ in hell. That's just some of the things I could have said. And again, maybe you've been in that circumstance where you've recognized, okay, I need, I need to witness here. And so you, you say something, but as you reflect back, you say, boy, that was a pretty weak something. I, I, I said something that was positive about Jesus, but I live in a culture where, honestly, almost anyone will say something kind of positive about Jesus. Paul is bold. Paul in this text that we're looking at this morning, pushes the point. He forces his audience to consider the claims of who Jesus Christ is and, and make sure that they are, over a period of three Sabbaths in the synagogue, he makes sure that they are crystal clear in understanding who Jesus is, what he did, why he had to do that, and what it means to place one's trust in Jesus Christ. He does that with boldness, recognizing that as he is bold, he is going to suffer some consequences. He's already suffered some consequences for the boldness of his gospel proclamation. He recognizes that, that may happen again, but despite the consequences of that boldness, he pushes forward, he presses in, he gets specific because he knows that that specificity, that boldness is necessary to be a faithful witness. In fact, that's the, the main idea that I want us to think about this morning. A, a faithful witness is a bold witness to God's good news that Jesus is the Christ. If we're going to be faithful in this gospel witness, there is a boldness that accompanies that faithfulness, a clarity of gospel as we talk with those who may be lost. We want to make sure not only do they have some nice things to say about Jesus, like, yeah, Jesus is a pretty big, important person, but do they understand what his importance is, why he's important, and are they trusting in him for the their eternal life. To get to that point in a gospel conversation requires boldness. It requires pushing the point. It might require some, some uncomfortable aspects, awkward aspects of a conversation, and yet it's necessary. It's necessary for us to be faithful in our witness. We're going to look this morning then at the necessary gospel, what, what convictions we need to have as we share the gospel message, and then we're also going to talk about the disruptive gospel, what the, the true gospel message does as it interacts with both believers and the world. So let's first of all talk about the necessary gospel, the necessary gospel, some, some biblical convictions that we must hold and assert with boldness as we proclaim the gospel. This is the necessary gospel. Biblical convictions that you and I, as we 
think about our witness. We, we need to hold and assert these biblical convictions with boldness as we're proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. Where are we in the text? Well, remember in Acts 16, where were we? We were in Philippi. And that's where we have the encounter with Lydia. That's where we have the encounter with a Philippian jailer. Things do not go well. Paul and Silas are in prison. They don't go well from a human perspective. They're put in prison. They're treated shamefully. And uh, they are, there's that uh, miraculous encounter with a Philippian jailer where people in the jailer's household place their faith in Jesus Christ. And then the, the city authorities come to them. They say, you need to leave. And Paul says, no, we're not going to leave quietly. You need to publicly apologize. And so there's that public uh, recognition of the validity of their claims, that they, they weren't disrupting the city, and then they leave. And what happens next? Verse 1 of Acts 17. Remember, they're in Macedonia. They're, they're in the northern region of, of what we call Greece. And what happens? It says they go through Amphipolis and Apollonia. So they would have been there in Philippi, and they would have traveled 30 miles or so to the south-southwest along the Anatia uh, the, the, the Via Ignatia, this ancient Roman road, they travel 30 miles and they travel another 30 miles to Apollonia, kind of again to the west, southwest, and then another 30 miles or so to the west, they arrive in Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a, a huge city. Uh, some estimate that it's around 100,000 people at this time. Some say a little bit less, some say twice as many, but, but it's, bottom line, it's big. We don't know exactly how big because the, the ruins of the city are underneath the existing city, so we, we can't exactly figure out how big it was, but it's, it's big, right? It's a prominent city. It's a free city. It has the ability to govern itself in many ways. It's loyal to Rome, and yet they have a lot of autonomy. And this is where Paul arrives, and, and unlike in Philippi, here in Thessalonica, there's a significant Jewish presence, population, because it's such a large city. And so here in Thessalonica, what does Paul do? Luke tells us he goes into the Sabbath, uh, goes into the synagogue on three Sabbaths, and he begins to, to talk to the Jews. Now, here, that brings us to the first conviction that I want us to, to think about. As we think about the boldness of our witness and the necessary gospel, here's the first conviction that you and I must have as we are bold in our witness. Number one, we need to be convinced that the Scripture is God's authoritative word. You and I must be firmly convinced that scripture is God's authoritative word. Paul arrives in the synagogue, and over three Sabbaths, he, from God's word, teaches. Now, keep your finger there in Acts 17, and turn to your right, if you're in a physical Bible, uh, to, to 1 Thessalonians. Or just go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. 1 Thessalonians, that's the sound my phone makes. I don't know if yours makes the same. We're in a, a, a 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, it's interesting, Paul, as he's writing the letter to the Thessalonians, he describes his ministry in Thessalonica. It's very interesting to, to read and have him expand on what we read here in Acts chapter 17. Now, what I want you to see first is a, a weak, uh, timid gospel presentation. A weak gospel message moves Scripture's authority to the side. So listen to how Paul describes his ministry. And first, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, he describes it in terms of what it was not. He said, okay, this is not what I did. So look at the text of 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, I didn't come to you in vain. Verse 2, 
though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, so remember we were treated shamefully at Philippi, the way the authorities treated us, the persecution we endured, even despite that, we had, what does he say, boldness in our God to declare to you the, the gospel, the good news of God in the midst of much conflict. For our, our appeal does not, so here's some things that do not characterize the way they present the gospel. It doesn't spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Again, not to please men, but to please God who tests our heart. We never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or others. So we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So he says, look, this is, this is not what characterized my proclamation of the gospel. It wasn't weak or timid. It wasn't what we would call man-centered. It wasn't a man-centered presentation of the gospel. Do you know what a man-centered gospel is? It's kind of a phrase maybe you've heard used before, but not quite sure what that means. When we say a man-centered gospel, a man-centered gospel says, okay, what do people want? What are their desires? And now I'm going to change the gospel message so that it appeals to the desires that people have. So I look out and I think about the lost world, and, and it can be motivated by a good desire. I say, okay, I want, I want lost people to recognize that Jesus is, is, the, is salvation, that Jesus is beautiful. And so I, I'm going to find out what people desire. Maybe people desire a, a healthy, healthy marriage, or maybe they desire a ha- happy family, or maybe they desire uh, high self-esteem, or they desire financial success, or they desire whatever. They desire cool friends. I'm going to find out what they want. They want community. I find out what they want, and now I'm going, to, I'm going to talk to them about how Jesus can fulfill their desires, whatever those desires are, apart from Christ. So here are your desires, and I'm going to show you how Jesus will give you what you want, right? That's, that's a man-centered gospel. I'm going to change the message and make it appealing to people who, who don't have a relationship with the Lord. Now, why is that a problem? Why is that a problem? Isn't Jesus the ultimate desire? Well, yes. But again, it's changing the message to give what an unregenerate person desires in their heart. And so an unregenerate person desires idols, right? That's what God's word tells us. Even good things that God would give us become idols to the the person who's not a believer. So a healthy marriage can become an idol. A a, a happy family can become an idol. These, These things that God would desire us to have in him become an idol as we desire them instead of him. Tim Keller, uh, Tim Keller has a, a great statement on this as, as he talks about the, the gospel, um, the message, and, and who God is. Uh, Tim Keller says, as he's talking about Moses and, and God's interaction with Moses, God doesn't tell Moses, tell them I am what you want. He says, tell them I am what I am. Man-centered gospels, we see them so often, right? We see them so often. Say, okay, what, what do you want? And now let me tell you how God will give you what it is that you desire. So Paul says that's not, for Thessalonians 2, that's not how we came. We didn't, our, our motives weren't to please you. Our motives weren't to flatter you. We came and he says in 1 Thessalonians 2.13, we, we gave you not the word of men, but you accepted what our message really is, the word of God. 
You see, a, a, that's a weak gospel presentation. It's a man-centered one. A bold gospel presentation says, okay, here's God's word. I'm going to keep God's word at the center. I'm going to tell you what God's word says about God. Here's his message to you. God's word tells you that your desires are idols. Even the good things you desire are idols. And now let me tell you how you can worship the true and living God, and God will give you, as you worship him, what you ultimately need, which, which is him. Your family is an idol, potentially. Your self-esteem is an idol. You want to turn from those things and worship the true God. Now, how do, we, how do we know that this is how Paul presented the gospel? He says it in 1 Thessalonians 2, but also look back at Acts 17 and listen to how it describes his message. Three words that, that are used here in the original language that I think are very, very beautiful in describing Paul's ministry. Verse 2, it says that he goes in and he reasoned with them. That, that word in the Greek is dialogeomai. It means to, you hear the word dialogue in that. It means to not just preach, but to engage in a discussion with them. There's a recognition in that word when you engage in this type of discussion that there's disagreement. And so Paul goes in and he's, he's engaging in this dialogue with them. He's engaging in this explanation, this, this argument. And What's the, what's the source of his authority? It's not just, here's what I think and here's why you're wrong. It says that he reasoned with them from the Scripture. So he engages in this, this conversation with them, with the Scripture as a, his authority. And then look at two other words. The ESV translates them explaining and proving. Explaining and proving. That first word is dianoigo. dianoigo. It means to, to fully open. And the other word is paratithemi. It means to, to place beside. And so he's, he's taking the word of God and he's taking Jesus Christ. He's saying, okay, here's how. Let me open up the word of God to you and place Jesus Christ and, and show you how Jesus is the Christ. The scripture is the authority. He's engaging in this dialogue, using God's word, opening it up, putting before them what it says about Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more thing I want you to notice here as we think about boldness. Boldness doesn't mean rudeness, right? It doesn't mean brashness. Sometimes people say, well, I'm bold for Christ, and, and what they mean is I'm rude, right? There, there's, there's a boldness that can, that can be a, a brashness, but listen to what Paul, he's, he's bold. We're going to talk about how bold he is in just a minute. But, but, but notice what 1 Thessalonians, you can turn back there if you want again. 1 Thessalonians 2 says about the manner in which he was bold. So he says, this is what I was not in those first few verses of 1 Thessalonians 2. And then he says, this is what I was. This is what we were. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 7. He says, as they were bold, he says, but we were gentle among you. We were like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. And so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct to you who were believers. And so the scripture's author, God's authoritative word and, and understanding that the scripture's God's authoritative word gives us a boldness as we engage in people's lives and say, look, this is not what I say. This is what God's word says. But we say that not as some sort of arrogant, brash, this is what you need to do, or else it's not our message. It's, look, this is God's message. And 
we approach the people we share this gospel message with like, like a mother would with her children. Hey, I love you. And I desire you to love God. And here's what God says about how you can come into relationship with me. And let me come alongside you in a relationship and make sure you understand what God's word says. I'm going to be bold. I'm going to press in in some uncomfortable ways as we have these conversations. But that boldness is driven by this is what God's authoritative word says. And I want you to grasp God's word because I, I love you. I'm willing to give you not just the word of God, but my own life as we engage in this conversation. But understand foundationally, understand foundationally, the authority of our message is found in God's word. This is why we are a, a church that practices expositional preaching. You know, we, we take a, a text of God's word, we say, okay, we're going to walk through what this text says, and next week we're going to walk through the next part of this text, we're going to let God's word be our authority. It's interesting, uh, uh, one of the pastors came into my office this week, and he said, he said, uh, Daniel, I want to talk to you about a couple things. I want to talk to you about uh, your sermon last week. And he said this, he says, I don't think the text says what you said it says. Which is a very helpful way to communicate, right? In other words, he's saying, look, the, the authority is not you. The authority is the text. And, and there was something you said last week that I want to talk with you about because I love you. And I think what you said the text says isn't what the text actually says. Now, how is that helpful? Because both of us are agreeing that, that what's the authority? The, the authority is not what Daniel says, what this other pastor says. The authority is what the text says. And so that, that allows a dialogue to happen. So, okay, let's, let, let's think about that. What did I say? How could I have said that more clearly? There's a, we talked about there's a tension in the text, and I said something in a way that maybe I could have said something more clearly, and, and there's some things I need to still think through what he shared. Say, okay, I need to think about how to word that better. But, but what's the bottom line? The bottom line is, for both of us, what's the authority? The authority isn't my opinion. He didn't come in and say, you know what, Daniel, I disagree with your, your opinion about this, your opinion about that. I don't agree with your, your take on the culture, your take on this uh, this this, this uh, hot sports opinion you had. Here's what the text says. Here's what you said the text says. Do, do, do they match up? Well, let's, let's ask that question. That's the basis of our authority. Now you might ask the question, okay, what do I do in a culture where, we, we live in a culture where the authority of, of Scripture isn't recognized any longer. What, what does that mean? Does that mean I need to change how I present the message because people don't believe that God's word is authoritative? Well, I'd say two things. One, Scripture is still authoritative for you, right? Not just it's authoritative for you, but you still recognize the authority of God's word. And so, you see, as I, as I recognize the authority of God's word, God's word, not the culture, not my friend, is going to determine the message that I that I, that I give, and it, it warns me, Scripture warns me, look, the word of the cross to those who are perishing is foolish. And so Scripture says, look, here's a foolish message, this is what you need to say, and this is how it's going to be received. Secondly, I would say, and encourage you with this, even in a culture, or even with individuals who don't recognize the, 
the authority of God's word, it's still authoritative, right? And we can still trust God's word in in their life as well. In other words, the truthfulness of God's word doesn't depend upon a person receiving it as true. Sometimes in our culture, we, we have this idea of truth like that, that play uh, uh, Peter Pan, where you know where there's a, that scene in Peter Pan where uh, Tinkerbell is, is dying and, and it calls on the audience, clap your hands if you believe in fairies. You know, clap your hands. That's not how Christianity works. Clap your hand if you believe in Jesus. That's not how truth is determined. It saves Tinkerbell, but it, does, it doesn't save a person. It's not, the salvation is not based on whether I agree with it that it's true or not. What are we? We are, we are like people in the midst of a hurricane. And 150 mile an hour plus winds are bearing down on us. And it doesn't matter if I believe it or not. They're coming. They're here. And the destruction is real. And, and what are we? We are like these, these sirens wailing the alarm. Look, this is coming. This is coming. This is reality. It doesn't matter if you believe it or not. It's coming. That's what it means that scriptures are authority. Now, here's two, some more things. Number two, another conviction we must have. It's necessary as we share the gospel. Number two, we need to communicate, we have boldness to assert that the Christ had to suffer for you. Number two, the Christ had to suffer for you. Paul opens up God's word. He opens up, opens up God's word and he explains to them, it says, a couple of things. It says in verse 3, he was explaining and proving, first of all, that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer. We're convinced, because we believe that Scripture is true, we're convinced the reality that the Christ had to die, the Messiah had to die in our place. And from the beginning of Scripture, Paul could have gone through any place in Scripture and showed this story that we've been separated from God due to our sin, and only God can save us. In fact, if you want to, you can turn to Isaiah 53. Remember earlier, Isaiah 53, you want to follow along with me here. Remember earlier in the book of Acts, we don't know exactly how Paul presented that the Christ had to suffer as he's there in Thessalonica, sharing the gospel in the synagogue. But remember earlier in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8, we saw the Ethiopian eunuch reading from this passage in Isaiah 53. And, and Paul could have used this passage. He could have said, okay, here's, here's what Isaiah 53 says. And Isaiah 53 says that in verse 2, uh, this, this, this servant of the Lord grew up before him like a young plant. And like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 5, Isaiah 53, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, upon the Christ, upon the Messiah, was the the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Now, can you just imagine Paul in a synagogue talking about that passage? Say, look, it was was necessary for the Christ to suffer. Let me take you to to this passage in Isaiah. Remember what the prophet Isaiah says about the Messiah, the the servant of the Lord, that he's not going to be esteemed, he's going to be stricken, he's going to be afflicted for our sins. 
He's going to take upon himself the, the penalty of our sin. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, has, has placed on the Messiah the, the iniquity, the sin of us all. Verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And we see Philip taking this passage to the Ethiopian and saying, look, this is, the, this is Jesus. This is who he's talking about. And we can imagine Paul standing in the synagogue in Thessalonica and, and teaching the same thing. Verse 8, by oppression of, of Isaiah 53, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered him that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And you can imagine Paul telling the story of Jesus and talking about his crucifixion. And okay, this is how this, this was fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his day. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Now you can imagine, again, there's more we could go there, but you can just imagine the, the conversation that Paul has with those in Thessalonica. He says, look, you, you, say that you, you say that you believe that the scripture is authoritative. So this is what the scripture says about the Messiah. The Messiah has to die in our place. He has to take upon himself the iniquity. Now let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you how he was born. Let me tell you the perfect life he lived. And now let me tell you about the work that he did on the cross. Now that is is the Christ. The Christ had to suffer. The New Testament witnesses to this as well, the necessity of the Christ suffering for us. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ, the Messiah, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to, to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him who knew, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. Now, brothers and sisters, do you see why you need to be bold on this point? The people we desire to share the gospel with as we're witnesses need to understand that the Christ had to suffer for them. Imagine two scenarios. Scenario number one, you fall into a river, and it's a river with a very strong current. And due to the strength of the current, you're, having, you're struggling, and you don't know if you're going to make it to the bank. And someone, a man on, on the bank, sees you struggling and jumps into the river, and helps you get to the shore, and, and with your effort and his effort, you are able to make it on to the shore and, and be saved. That's scenario number one. Now imagine also scenario number two. You fall into a river, and you begin to be swept away by the current, and you are not a strong swimmer, and the more that you struggle, the worse your predicament becomes. And a man on the bank sees you struggling, he jumps in to save you, and only when you stop struggling, only when you trust in him, 
Is he able to safely carry you to the bank? Now, those are two very different scenarios. There's some similarities. And in our culture, when it comes to Jesus Christ, they would say, well, that's basically the same scenario. Well, there's some similarities in those scenarios. You're in both of them. There's a guy who, who helps you in both of them. But, but if you think you're in scenario one and you're actually in scenario number two, you're, you're going to perish. You see, it is crystal clear that we help people understand, look, Jesus is not some nice teacher that just can help you live a better life. It's absolutely vital that we help people understand, look, you are dead in your trespasses and sin. You've got no hope here. You are spiritually dead. And, and what's more, the more you work to try to, to save yourself, the further away from God you become. And most people in your life do not understand that with clarity. And so it is crucial that we say, look, I want to make sure that you understand what it means that Jesus Christ died on the cross. He didn't just die on the cross just to give you a good example. He didn't just die on the cross to show you how to live for others. He didn't just die on the cross in order to to make you a better person. Jesus Christ died on the cross because he took your place. And there is nothing you can do to earn salvation. And the more you strive to earn salvation, the further away from God you become. To get there in a conversation requires boldness, right? It requires some pressing in. It requires, requires clarity. You see why we have to be bold here as God's word commands. Here's the third thing, third thing that's necessary here. Number three, we need to be convinced and communicate that the Christ had to die, excuse me, had to rise from the dead for you. The Christ, the Messiah, Jesus had to rise from the dead for you. Now, again, we don't know. Luke is short here. There's brevity here. We don't know exactly what Paul said. But there's passages he could have gone to to communicate this. He could have gone to Psalm 1610, which we see Peter go to in Acts chapter 2. Acts, uh, excuse me, Psalm 1610 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. And we see that quoted in Acts 2 and Acts 13. We also see in Acts 2, Paul quotes, excuse me, Peter quotes, Psalm 110 and, and proclaims the victory of Christ. Where he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So, Paul, again, we don't know what text, but chapter 17, verse 3 says, he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Why is that a necessary thing to make sure that people understand? There's several reasons, but let me, just, let me just touch on one. What does it mean to you to live the victorious life? It's without living a, a victorious life in Christ. This morning, I, I would, if I were to ask you, are you living a victorious life? What, what, what would you say? I think some of you would say, you know what? Um, I certainly don't, I don't feel like I am. Right now, I've got this situation going on at work. I've got this situation with my health, and 
I've got the situation going on with, with my family. I feel defeated. In fact, not just my family. As I, as I think about my own response to, to, to struggles in my life, I, am, I, I wouldn't call myself victorious over sin. I would say that I, I'm, I'm being defeated by sin. You see, understanding that the Christ experienced victory is essential for us understanding our victory. And I, what I need to do is I need to understand Christ's victory for me. Because so many of us, as we talk about ourselves, as we talk to other people who don't clearly understand the gospel, there's this, there's this belief that, okay, what I need to do, I need to, I need to get my house in order. And once I get my house in order, then I can have a relationship with other Christians. I can have a relationship with God that I want. And, and we have this little, this little house we're building, but it's a, it's a, it's a house built out of a deck of cards. And we get a little bit of, build a little bit, and then our three-year-old comes along and knocks, okay, I'm going to try again. And we, we build a little bit, we sneeze, and we knock it down. And, and we're trying to, to, to create this, this structure before we enter into this relationship with God. And, and here's what the gospel message tells us that we need to make sure we understand and we communicate to others. This is God's work. The victory is not your victory. The victory is a victory that has already been achieved on the cross at the resurrection by the Messiah. Galatians, listen to this. Listen to this. This is so important. We're not calling decent people to become better people. We're calling dead people to become alive, not alive in themselves, but alive in Christ, a resurrection that only God can and already has accomplished. And Scripture reminds us over and over again of who we are and then tells us how to live in that victory. We live in the risen Christ. Listen to a couple of passages. Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. It says that God gave his son Jesus who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Christ came to deliver us, to, to, get, to rescue us from the present evil age. 1 John 3.18, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So a person who, who lives in sin is of the devil. The devil has been sinning from the beginning. But listen to this. Why did Jesus come? The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And that's already been accomplished through the cross Shown in the resurrection. Galatians, uh, Colossians chapter 2. Listen to what Colossians chapter 2 tells you about your sin. You were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made you alive together with him, having forgiven, past tense, all of our trespasses by canceling, past tense, the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's at the resurrection. And so you and I are, are not, we're, we're not defeated believers. We are people who are in the victorious Christ. And so Paul says, look, you need to understand, Christ rose from the dead. And your hope of victory over sin is that you are in Christ. And as, just as Christ is victorious, you today are victorious as well. You are no longer a slave to sin. Listen to this, Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12, it talks about the future, but we live in the, we live in the present of this being 
being inaugurated, Revelation chapter 12, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our, our God and the authority of, of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers, Satan has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. That's the victory. It's a victory that we have in the present and will be fulfilled completely in the future, and we live in it today. Are you struggling with sin this morning? Maybe you feel its weight and power. Is the enemy telling you this morning you're worthless? God could never love you. The beauty of the gospel we must make sure that people understand is, look, Christ has achieved the victory for you. You're right. You could never defeat sin on your own. That, that besetting sin, that, that, that temptation, that anger, that, that lust, that greed, that love of, of, of worldly things, you will never defeat that in your own strength. But in Christ, the victory has already been accomplished. And it's so beautiful in Scripture. Read through, read through most of the epistles in the New Testament. They, they begin by telling, look, here's who you are. Here's who you are. Here's who you are. Now, now live in who you are. Not live and then become someone. You already are someone. Now live in that, that reality of who you are. That's the gospel message. Number four, the Christ we proclaim is Jesus. And we've already talked about that this morning, but Paul makes it explicit in verse three. The Christ that I'm proclaiming is Jesus. Your trust, your faith must be in Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about the disruptive gospel. What's the response to this message? The, the, the Christ we proclaim is Jesus, and now let's, let's talk about the disruptive gospel. There are biblical truths that force us to respond to God's claims regarding the lordship of Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Messiah. First, notice this. First, notice this. One, some are persuaded, right? Some are persuaded. Sorry, I'm going quickly here. Some are persuaded, and they, they join Paul and Silas. And it says a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Some Jews, some are god fears here. They, they understand the gospel message. They're persuasive. I, I believe that. It's been clearly presented to me, and now I, I believe what you're saying. But number two, some are persuaded, but number two, some are jealous. Some of the Jews are jealous. They get, it says in verse Five, but the Jews were jealous. They, they take some, some wicked men of the rabble, that some, some, uh, the, the, the literal word describes people just kind of hanging around in a marketplace, and they, they formed a mob. And notice here a, a contrast between the true gospel and a false gospel. There's a, Paul is taking a reasoned, spirit-filled, spirit-filled approach to proclaiming the gospel. This is this flesh-fueled inflaming of the rabble, a lack of willingness to search the scriptures. We'll talk about that next week to see if these things are true, and instead there's just an appeal to the rabble-rousers. That's not how the Spirit accomplishes his work, right? And it says they, they bring, they go to the house where they're staying. They find Jason, with whom they're staying. They, they can't find Paul and Silas, but they, they drag Jason in front of the city authorities and, and listen to what they accuse them of. They say, these men have turned the world upside down. Wouldn't it be a great thing to be accused of? <laughs> the gospel is disruptive. 
Wouldn't you love someone to, to, to take you and say, look, this person's turning the world upside down. They keep talking about Jesus all the time, and they, they're, they're demanding that we worship Jesus Christ, and this guy's, this guy's trying to turn my life out, upside down. This, this woman's trying to convince me to live a, a much different life. They say they've turned the world upside down. Now, now they're here. Jason's received them. They're all acting against the decrees of Caesar. We've seen this, this play before, trying to say that these people aren't loyal to, to Rome. And now they're saying there's another king, Jesus. Another king, Jesus. The people and the city authorities are disturbed. They, they hear these things and they, they make Jason and the others pay, a, pay some sort of fee. Say, look, you, or agree to pay a fee if, if Paul and Silas come back and then Paul and Silas leave the city. We'll talk about that next week. But here's the number three, third thing to think about as we think about this text. Some are persuaded, some are jealous, but, but all are changed. This is what I want us to see. When the gospel is clearly and boldly presented, you can't be neutral to its claims. You've got to make a decision. When I talk to someone and they say something kind of nice about Jesus, I can kind of back up from the conversation. We kind of leave everything nice and subtle. But if I press in, Say, look, I'm not sure you understand what I'm saying. Look, Jesus is the Christ. Jesus, he died on the cross for your sins. And he, he calls all people to worship him and him alone, to turn away from all other idols and to worship him alone. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do you understand who Jesus is? Do you understand that he rose from the dead and now you can have victory in him? When we press in like that, it's going to force disruption. Some people are going to be, it's, there's, it's going to cause disruption to say, look, I, I don't believe the things you're saying. Let's go back to that nice little statement about Jesus being a good teacher. But as we press in, it's, it's going to cause disruption. Some are going to, some are going to resist it, but some, some are going to respond. And, and I want to close by reading what Paul says about the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 1. You see, only the true gospel, only the bold gospel is going to produce true disciples. We can present a timid gospel, we can present kind of an anemic gospel, and we can get people who say nice things about Jesus, but we're not going to achieve true discipleship. Here's what Paul says about the Thessalonians, because he was bold in his gospel presentation. He says, 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 5, Our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power, and the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction and the joy of the Holy Spirit. A man-centered gospel doesn't cause men and women to change. A God-centered, scripture-infused gospel message forces change. Verse 8, not only, not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we have no need to say anything, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how, listen to this, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, Jesus the Christ, who delivers us from the wrath to come. A faithful witness is a bold witness to the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. 
we, we pray that we would be bold. Father, if there are some here this morning who haven't thought about your claims concerning your son, Jesus, that they would think about them very carefully, what it means to have Christ die in their place and to, to be raised from the dead. We, we pray that they would see the, the beauty and the power of this gospel message and, and, and trust in Jesus alone for their salvation. And we pray for those of us to whom you've entrusted this message. Father, give us boldness to, to push in, in gentle, loving caring ways to make sure the people that we, we love are hearing the truths of your gospel message faithfully and fully. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.